But what about you? Who do you say I am? It's difficult to say precisely how long into Jesus' three years of public ministry we are at the point at which he and his disciples in this morning's reading come to the region of Caesarea Philippi, as Matthew records. However, in the 16th chapter of Matthew's 28, I think it's fair to say that we're, we're definitely over halfway through the three years of Jesus' public ministry. We're given no particular reason by Matthew as to why Jesus has gone to this city far to the north of Galilee, although we can guess from the reasons given for similar journeys that they made in the preceding verses and chapters that it may well have been to get away from the crowds who followed them everywhere they went round the lake. Jesus was perhaps still looking for rest, but that time spent in the presence of his heavenly Father, away from the hustle and the bustle that often makes it so difficult truly to connect with God. I'm sure many of us know today, just as Christ did 2,000 years ago. But what we do know is that here at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus turns to his disciples and asks them directly, But what about you? Who do you say I am? He's already asked them, in the preceding moments, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And the disciples give an initial and a very plausible answer that this Son of Man figure, um, more about uh, the significance of that title in a moment, that this Son of Man is one of the most important historical prophets of Israel, maybe Isaiah, maybe Jeremiah, or even the most recent striking prophetic figure, John the Baptist. Um, only recently, tragically beheaded by Herod. But then Jesus, in the structure of his questioning, clearly identifies himself as this son of man figure. A title that evokes a sense of an everyman figure, of a descendant, descendant of Adam himself, because Adam um, means just that, it means man. And also, uh, a, a sense of the visionary figure in the book of Daniel who descends and ascends on clouds of heaven and to whom all nations bow and worship. Jesus homes in not on the general answer from the people of Israel as a whole, but whom do they, the disciples themselves, whom do they declare him Jesus by inference, this Son of Man. Whom do they say that he is? Matthew doesn't tell us how long it took the disciples to reply. But I think that given the enormity and the, the pointedness of Jesus' question, we can well imagine that the disciples um, might be looking down at the ground, maybe sideways at one another, find something fascinating to fix their eyes on in the distance, before finally Simon Peter jumps in, very Simon Peter-like, 
and says it. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In doing so, Peter makes this a pivotal moment in the Gospels. It's a bit of an oversimplification to say that this is the point up to which Jesus has been drawing huge crowds in around, and around Galilee through his ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit. But for, that from then on, he heads inexorably southwards towards Jerusalem to the opposition of uh, others, the religious authorities in particular, that will eventually lead to the cross. It's a bit of an oversimplification because Jesus would, uh, in any case, have been having to go to Jerusalem to worship several times a year at the temple at the principal religious festivals. But nevertheless, there's a definite sense in which this question and the answer Peter gives to it, that they mark a fundamental turning point in Jesus' ministry and in the ministry indeed of those who would follow after him. Because this is the first occasion on which at least one of the disciples, confronted by the directness of Christ's question, declares Jesus' divinity. You are the Messiah, says Peter, the Son of the living God. The Messiah. The one who the Jewish people believed would come to liberate them from oppression. The leader, the ruler who would bring once again the glories of King David to God's chosen nation. The one in whom the prophecies made over centuries will be fulfilled. But also the son of the living God. A recognition that in all of the teachings and especially the miracles that Peter and his fellow disciples have witnessed in Jesus, there was something so far beyond the human that the only possible explanation was that this man had to be divine. And not just the Son of God, but the Son of the living the God who is alive in the world, who brings life into this world, who sustains life in this world, who's the very essence of life itself. Life that, in and through the divine person of Jesus, we are able to live in all its fullness. In fact, as Jesus goes on to say, the living God, who's the one who has given him Peter, this revelation of Jesus' divinity, and in doing so, blesses him. Caesarea Philippi, Christian shorthand, if you like, for the moment when humanity first recognised Jesus as the Son of God. But also Caesarea Philippi. Christian shorthand for the moment to which we can trace ultimately all that we now know as the church. Even though what's translated into English in our Bibles as church here, the Greek word ecclesia, from which we get our word ecclesiastical of course, 
ecclesia would have been understood in a very different way from church as we now know and experience it. Because in response to Simon Peter's recognition of Jesus as God's son, Jesus, in fact renaming him from Simon to Simon Peter or simply Peter, Jesus affirms him uh, with this new name, Peter meaning rock, the rock on which he will build his church, giving him the power that he himself, Jesus, has wielded to the extent that even the gates of Hades, death itself, will be subject to the authority that those who follow Christ exert over creation. In the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, that power will be given to the church itself. What an extraordinary scene. Firstly, Simon Peter declares that Jesus is the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Then the affirmation of him by Jesus to continue his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit with all the authority that he, Jesus, has himself wielded in God's name. And yet, even in the next few verses, just after our reading, let alone in the remaining chapters of the Gospel, so much goes awry. In the next verses, verse 21 onwards, Jesus explains to his followers that he won't be the kind of king who carries all before him in warfare. He won't drive out the hated Romans in the way that they expect, but rather he will suffer at the hands of the authorities, and he'll be killed. But then he will be raised to new life. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Simon Peter fails to understand this sort of kingship, that this has to happen for Christ's mission to be fulfilled. And he questions Jesus. He says, surely that cannot be. But Jesus' response to him is almost violent in its intensity. He flings the words at Peter, get, be get thee behind me, Satan. He accuses him of seeing things only through a human perspective and not through the eyes of God. A similar sort of thing happens again at the start of the next chapter, chapter 70, when Peter completely fails to understand the significance of the vision that he and James and John receive when Jesus is transfigured. Jesus is enveloped in light with two of the historical prophets, showing his full glory. All that Peter wanted, uh, wants to do at that stage is build them a hut. He fails to get it. Peter has been so exalted. He's the one, the first one who sees clearly Jesus' divine nature. He will be the one in whom Jesus places the greatest trust. And yet it's him, only a very few verses later, who comes back down to earth again with a whopping great bump 
And indeed, of course, it's also him who, outside the house of the high priest, denies three times before the cock crows that he has ever known the arrested Jesus. Peter is a gift to each one of us as we seek, like him, to follow Jesus Christ as his disciple. We too are called, when the Jesus of the Gospel stands before us, an extraordinary teacher and miracle worker, to declare him the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We're called to do that, to say that. And in so doing, like Peter, we're called to place Jesus at the very centre of our lives, living for him and living in him, living through him, by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Jesus calls us to follow, to be in the words of Peter himself in chapter 2 of uh, the first letter that he wrote later in the New Testament. Jesus calls us to be living stones, being built up as a spiritual house, part of the structure of the church, supporting each other, building on top of each other, knitted together to perform uh, the function of something so much greater as a whole than we ever can individually. <coughs> Living stone. <coughs> might this look like in your life and in mine, in our collective spiritual life of our Cranmer Group family, if we all truly lived in the fullness of this declaration, that Jesus is the Son of the living God, how might things be different for us? What might we, as these living stones full of life that flows so abundantly from Christ, be able to accomplish together? What might we, we be able to do for and of um, Christ's heavenly Father's kingdom here in our communities? What a privilege that is. What a challenge that is too. If you may now be feeling uh, all sorts of pressure as a consequence of that, first of all, that's completely natural. How can we live up to the standards that Jesus calls us to, calls you, calls me, to live our life? How can we as a church family make a, a really profound difference in our villages, sharing the gospel, blessing others with the love of Christ? through the food bank, through so many other different ways, building Christ's church in our community. How can we do that? Well, here Peter and his fellow disciples, as I say, are a gift to us as well. They recognise Jesus as Lord. They follow Jesus as their Saviour. But they also Bless them, mess up mightily along the way. Time and again, they do the wrong thing. They fail to spot what's really going on. Through a lack of faith, they cause what Jesus has asked them to do, um, has, um, has sent them out 
to do. They cause uh, this to fall far short of his hopes and his prayers for them and their ministry. They all, and perhaps Peter above all, stumble. They turn away from Jesus. They apparently fail. But Christ picks them up. He forgives them. He places them back on the path with him. And it's through them that not just a group of six churches here, seven if we include Cranmer Connect, not just these few churches, but ultimately the entire universal church, through these followers, those Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of churches throughout our world. The universal church came into being. Through those who stumbled. Through those who apparently failed. Through those whom Christ loved and put back on the path with him forgiven. So this morning. As we come before Jesus, as he asks us, what about you? Who do you say I am? I encourage each one of us to respond with godly confidence. The son of the living God. And to set our eyes and our lives upon him too, secure in the knowledge of his love for each one of us. That we walk in the, in the footsteps of our brothers and sisters in Christ who've gone before, and that we also lead the way for those who will come after. And it's through all of us walking alongside one another and alongside Christ as we go. It's through all of us, like Peter and the other disciples, with all our failings and mistakes, as well as gifts and successes. It's through all of us that Christ builds his church here on earth. To the Father's glory. In Jesus' name.